Hello, and thank you for tuning into the How to Life podcast today. I'm Dr. Laura Jaggett, and you are listening to episode 32. Today, we're talking about game-based learning with NYU administrator and professor, Dr. Dave Eng. Among all his extensive accomplishments in this field, we're also going to discuss how games mirror our real life, real being in quotation marks, and how we can incorporate the ideas and rules that we accept when playing a game and use those same principles in our own life. When you look at it this way, it's really quite empowering and fun. You'll see what I mean. Dr. Eng will explain it all right now. Hi, Dave. Thanks so much for joining me today on the How to Life podcast. Thanks for having me, Laura. Glad to be here. Would you please tell us who you are and a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So my name is Dr. Dave Eng. I am an administrator at New York University School of Professional Studies. I am also one of our instructors, uh, professors in our Certificate of Learning Design program. The program that I teach in is about teaching and learning online and how people can best prepare themselves to do that. I am also a prolific writer and also a career development consultant. I write for a website called University XP on my research topic, which is actually using games for teaching and learning. And I also have another website called Job Hacker, where I write about helping other young professionals navigate their first full-time job search for those that want to work in higher education. That's very fascinating. How did you come to this? So my, I guess, history with this is really interesting because I know that when I first went to the University of Hartford, which is where I, I was an undergrad, I wanted that to be my new like renaissance, my new reawakening. In, in high school, I was super shy. And I knew that when I went to college for the first time, I was going to be able to reinvent myself because no one there knew who I was in high school. So I really took that as an opportunity to just like dive deeply into everything that college had to offer. And Laura, this was also like early 2000s. So um, I was uh, going to college. I was living away from home for the first time. I knew that I really wanted to make like a new group of friends get involved. So I did a lot of things. I became an orientation leader. Um, I, I joined a fraternity. I started my own uh, improv comedy group when I was a freshman uh, in college. Um, but I say all this because I often tell people that the college was one of the best years of my life, but the best four years of my life. And when I graduated, I was really, really lost about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And I had majored, majored in advertising at the time. So I came back to the New York City area where I grew up because I'm from New Jersey originally. And I worked in advertising and it was a good day job, you know, like it got the bills paid, but I didn't really feel that fulfilled by it. Um, it was at that point when one of my colleagues told me about a program at New York University where I work now in um, college student affairs and higher education administration. I had no idea what those terms were, Laura. But my, my friend said, like, well, it's basically doing for a living everything you did as a student leader, you know, managing a student union, uh, helping student leaders, um, uh, working with different student organizations. And I was like, oh, you can, you can do that and get paid. You can essentially go and relive your college years um, ad nauseum for the rest of your life. I was like, yeah, sign me up. So I, I finished the program there at NYU. And um, since then, I had worked in higher ed um, at many different institutions. So I'd worked in 
at NYU, New York University, Fordham University. I worked at Hamilton College in student activities. Um, I worked on Semester at Sea, which is a college that is based aboard a ship. So everything that you would normally find in a college would base aboard a ship that sails around the world going to different ports. I wrote a book about it, about my travels there working as a student affairs professional. Um, and then I worked in student affairs for quite a number of years until I decided I wanted to go back to grad school. I knew that I'd want to earn my doctorate. And I, I knew that I wanted to study a specific topic that I think would resonate with myself. Because my advisor said that whatever you pick, you're going to need to dedicate several years of your life to studying. So I said, you know, what, what better thing than games? And specifically, how can you use games for learning? Because I, ga- I played games for a large part of my life. So I went to Northeastern University. I studied how to use games for teaching and learning, specifically using them with my own students because I was um, I was teaching at the time and I, I also was in charge of an office uh, of student activities. So I worked with a lot of orientation leaders and other student leaders. Uh, and since then, I just kind of pivoted because I knew that I had created this new skill set of being able to teach other people online remotely in like these distributed environments like what we're doing right now and i also know how to use games for teaching and learning and that's kind of where it landed me today i still work for a college um, i still get to do things that i love and um i while i don't teach undergrads anymore i do keep in touch with many of them since a lot of them have actually kind of followed my path and now work in higher ed as well so that's the that is the short story laura i didn't even know you could get an advanced degree in that <laughs> So my degree is in is in education. I have a doctorate of education. Um, so I'm my focus is really on teaching and learning and and basically administration of education. But when I looked back at myself and I kind of looked at you know like the formative years of my life, games were kind of always there. Uh, I always played like um, console games. Like my very first console was a Super Nintendo. I always played board games and card games and tabletop games with my cousins. Um, always played like and still play PC games right now. Um, so games are kind of one of those things that I, I was like, oh, you know what? They, they've never really left my life. I kind of play them in different ways with different people, but they're there. And I, I was like, I wonder if there's a field of people using games for learning. And that's how I kind of stumbled onto this field that I study and I'm kind of a leader of now, games-based learning. You're leading the way in this field, would you say? Yeah, I'd say so. I, I wouldn't say that I'm the world's foremost expert. There's, I have a number of colleagues that I um, network and communicate with regularly, but I'm one of those people that is always writing about it, talking about it, doing presentations and panels about using games for learning. And it's kind of been a wild ride because I never really came into this wanting to be a you know world expert, but I kind of have fallen into that that hole right now. Looking back on it now, when you used to play games and enjoyed them when you were younger, what did they do for you then that you weren't really aware of? I'd say one of the biggest things and something that I tell my students now is that games are really great at providing the player agency, which means that, you know, whenever you're playing a game and I want your listeners to think about any, any of their favorite games, it could be like a card game or PC game or even a mobile game or anything else like that. Whenever you play a game, you're in control of your avatar. You're in control of that world. Whatever you say and do and act has an impact on that world. And I think that is the thing that brings a lot of people towards games because a lot of people still use games as entertainment, like escapism. And in escapism and with games, you have 100% agency, which means that whatever you do and say matters. 
games provide players the ability to be effective in whatever they choose to do. And I think that's what makes games really uh, endearing. The escape Mm -hmm. factor is important Mm -hmm. because if you are in the midst of an uncomfortable or unpleasant situation, or even if you're stressed just from studying or, or work, to take a break and change directions and give your brain a new environment mm-hmm. in which to rest and be excited about is a huge relief. You can then take that momentum, that good feeling momentum that playing that game gave you, and then turn your attention back to whatever it was you escaped from temporarily before and use that to go forward. Do you find that's true? Yeah, exactly. So, um, we often look at games as that like that escapist function, um, but it's also a really good way for us to perform like what I like to call like a mental palate cleanser. Like if we were studying for a really long time or for specifically me, if I'm just you know, reading and responding to emails to hours on end, I kind of want a little mental break. And sometimes games provide that. A lot of the games that I see people playing specifically on like mobile devices, provide that really quick, clean palate cleanser of being able to just escape even for a few seconds at a time into this game world and then come back to their reality. I agree with that. I've done that myself. <laughs> when you're up against a wall and you can't see any further, it's nice to take a step back and and redirect. Yeah, yeah. The breaks, I think, whenever you're doing really deep work is very uh, important specifically because you need if you are looking for longevity then you you need to take those adequate breaks and adequate times to rest did you use games when you were a director of student activities i did start using games when i was a director of student activities because one of my philosophies for the uh, groups of student leaders that i would supervise is we would always have a training but we would always go away somewhere my biggest like client I'd say I use regularly was our YMCA camps because we would go away, we'd spend a weekend in the outdoors, we'd do some high adventure, outdoor adventure stuff. Um, but what I what I found particularly appealing, what my students really liked is I would just bring some board games for us to play on our downtime. You know, like at night, you know, people wanted to go back to their cabin and they want to hang around the fire, they could play board games. But then what I realized that with this kind of renaissance that we have right now with new and modern board games is that they can, you can use board games to fulfill any number of different scenarios or situ- situations. So I first got started with a board game called Pandemic, which is a cooperative board game. And if your listeners have never heard of Pandemic before, cooperative board games, it's a game where you don't play against other players. All of the players are playing against the game. And in this case, I learned, because my students, I was watching my students play it, that this was kind of like a mini microcosm of what I wanted them to do in person. I wanted them to work with each other. I wanted them to collaborate. I wanted them to recognize the differences in other players and also how they could capitalize on those differences and work together in order to achieve a common goal. So that's really where I started using games for teaching and learning. What sort of courses do you teach? So one of the courses I teach right now at NYU is called Learning Technology and Tools. And the the specific focus of that class is I get my students ready to teach online synchronously. Like if you've ever been in a class before that is hosted via Zoom uh, at like one day a week or two nights a week or anything else like that, those are my students. And I have um, people from all over. I have other faculty members sometimes. I have human resources professionals. I have teachers and trainers, instructors, and everything else. And while the course specifically is geared towards helping those people achieve those specific outcomes, I do bring some games-based learning into it. And I tell them that one of the ways that you can really get your students 
involved and engaged in your course is to provide some level of agency. Remember what I said before, Laura, about games providing players agency in their ability to make different decisions. No one really likes to have a course where everything is kind of presented to you in like a serial format where you have to just do one thing after the next, after the next. I give the students in my course plenty of agency in order to determine what event, what essentially they want to focus on and what they want to learn in this course and how they want to get there. And now a lot of people may look at that and say, you know, Dave, that's not really a game. And I tell them, that's right, it's not a game. This is games-based learning. These are using the principles and aspects of games like agency and applying them to a learning setting. So it may not look like a game, but it, it is a game concept. I don't want to make any assumptions here. So will you please define what you mean by agency? Sure. So agency means a person's ability to make a decision that has some sort of impact. I'll use a game example. Uh, agency in Tetris is the ability to position a specific piece on the board in such a way that you can form a group of four lines later, which, is, which forms a block, and then you can clear those lines later. Everyone in Tetris gets the same blocks, but not everyone has to put them on the board the same way. And that is what I mean by agency. How do you advise students or people who come to you in using game theory to mm-hmm. apply to their own life, they feel lack of power or indecisiveness. How can they use these principles and apply it in their real world? One thing that I uh, also use is the ability to chunk down large projects and assignments and just like large tasks or anything else. And I tell people that because, uh, one, it is easier to accomplish a larger project if you break it down into smaller stages that you do over time. It seems less overwhelming. And the second part is that when you look at games, games actually chunk, and I say, I'm going to use another term called scaffolding, um, the, the player's experience another way. So one really great example that I rely on on a regular basis is I want your listeners to think about um, Super Mario Brothers. I'm talking about the very, very old school Nintendo 1980s, very first Super Mario that came out. And I want you to think about the first stage, which is called 1-1. In 1-1, there's really only a few ways you can complete that stage because the few ways that you can complete it involve the following basic actions. You have to move Mario from the left side of the screen to the right side. You have to jump over different obstacles and you have to jump on top of enemies in order to eliminate them from the screen. And what's interesting about that is that those are all the things that you need to succeed in that game. You don't need anything else in that game. Once you have those basic actions down, you can do everything else in that game. But Super Mario Brothers makes level 1-1 the stage where you have to do all of those things and demonstrate that you know how to do all those things well in order to progress to the next stage. And that's what I mean by chunking and scaffolding. Super Mario Brothers makes the very basic steps very evident and very clear so that players can master them before they can use them repeatedly for attacking the stages that come after them. That makes sense to me. So if someone is up against a wall or just feels overwhelmed, Uh back up, start with small little manageable steps, pick the easiest one Mm -hmm. and get your footing. I often tell them, I, I ask them, you know, like, what is the, the, the smallest, easiest thing that you can do right now? And, you know, sometimes they respond with, you know, like, I could just list out all the things I need to do. Or someone else would be like, I just need to, um, I just need to 
contact the person in charge of this project and tell them I'm overwhelmed. I'm like, okay, then just do that. If all you can do right now is list out all the things you need to do, list out the things. If all you need to do is contact the person who's in charge of this project, contact them. By doing that, you've already implemented your own agency and you have now control over your situation. You write a lot. Mm-hmm. And what are some of your favorite topics? Oh, uh, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what I write about in Game Space Learning is... Uh, like I said, uh, how to use games for teaching and learning. And some of the my favorite uh, posts that I've written in the past have been about these questions that people have asked me that I haven't really found a good definition for, so I decided to write it for myself. So one of my favorite posts from um, universityxp.com is, what is the magic circle, quote-unquote, for games? And I tell people that the magic circle it's interesting because if you've ever played a game before, you've been in the magic circle. And to put it simply, the magic circle is the headspace that we walk into whenever we play a game. If you ever play a sport like soccer, it's when you walk onto the field. If you ever play an online game like Overwatch, it's when you um, log into your first match for the first time. If you play chess, it's when you sit down at the board. The magic circle is the agreement that all players make that we are now playing a game. We usually don't even say it. We just, once we sit down to play the game or once we walk on the field, we've agreed that this is a game. We're playing it by these rules. No, these rules do not make sense in a regular world, but in the game, they make sense. Because if you think about it, like for soccer, it would be so much easier if I could just pick up the ball with my hands and just run into the goal. But that is not the game. The game of soccer is to try to get the ball in the goal using only your feet. And not your hands, basically. So that's what the magic circle is. And that's one of my one of my favorite posts that I've written recently. There's the game of life, not not the actual board game of life, which is fun in and of yeah. itself. But the actual game of life, our life, if we can look at it as a game and be aware of these principles, uh-huh. it's gonna be more fun and yeah. easier. When I whenever I use games for teaching and learning, and inevitably it, it it connects to, you know, like how can you use games for just to live a better life and everything else? Um, uh, in a game, it's very important that the players have the goal to win. But what is most important is not winning. What is most important is having the goal. And I want that to really resonate with your audience. We have something that we want to shoot for. And at the end of the day, it's not most important that we win, but rather that we have something to move towards. Games are one of those things that I think permeates a lot of different cultures and different borders and different uh, ages and generations and everything else. And games are one of those things where it is kind of a, a representation of the culture that created it. You know, everything from board games to mobile games to tabletop games and, and anything else like that. Um, when we play games, we enter that magic circle in which you know we agree to play by these rules that really make no sense in, in real life, but we, are, we want to escape for a bit, and we want to take some time right now to live in this game space. And what I tell people and what I think your audience should take away is that you, know, you can use games for that escapism, but I also trust that you'll look at some of your favorite games and pull apart some of the things that make it up and say, you know... I feel like I could probably use that in my life, or I feel like this is my ability to enact agency, or this is my ability to set a goal for myself, even if that means that I may not be able to win, but I have a goal. What is your favorite board game? So my favorite board game is one that's relatively new. Uh, If you don't play board games regularly, you may not have heard of it, but it's this board game called Azul. 
And Azul is by a designer named Michael Kiesling. And Azul is a very simple, what we call abstract game, which means that there's not very much theme involved in the game. It's just a bag of tiles and the tiles are five different colors. And you basically draw pieces from the bag and you have to pick pieces against your, your opponent that'll build the best wall of tiles. Uh, it's very beautiful. It's very well balanced. And it's one of those games that I could play, I think indefinitely. Uh, there's a circle of other tabletop gamers like me, and we keep track of all of our board game plays. And I think over the course of me owning this game, I've played it maybe close to 40 times at this point. And I think the next closest game I played maybe 15 or 16 times. So this is one of those games I turn to on a regular basis. I play it online. I play it with uh, my family and my friends. And it's just very, very relaxing for me, but has still has interesting decisions. So it's called Azul. Uh, if you have a chance to play it, I highly recommend it. Okay. I haven't heard of it, but I'm going to mm-hmm. check it out. Okay. And what about, do you still play console games? Uh, console games, not so much anymore. I don't own a console. I do play a lot of PC games online. I'm playing Among Us right now, which is very popular online. And I also play mostly tabletop games, board games. How does one find these games? Because I don't know about these online games, but you just mentioned Among Us and my daughter mm-hmm. and her teacher's like the class and the teachers get in and play this game. I hear mostly about games from my friend group um, that are also playing games online. But Among Us is really fun because it kind of takes this concept, which is called social deduction, and applies it to this online game. And, and social deduction is you using your own like wits and deduction in order to find the one or sometimes two traitors that are in a group. But it is a really fun game if you're into that sort of thing. What's a takeaway that you can give the audience on their life, what they're doing, where they're going, and how they can use games? Uh, I'd say that, you know, as we live our lives, we are kind of acting as like the designer of our own life, but also the player of our own life. Um, We have the ability to set up the decisions that we will make up later on. And what I find is most fascinating is you can't really do that in a game. In a game, you can, you know, like you're, you're usually either the designer or you're the player. But, you know, as we live our, our own lives and just live in this actual world, we are both the designer and the player. We can set ourselves up to make really great decisions down the line. And so it's really up to us as individuals and players in this whole game of life who have the greatest amount of agency. It's not so much about making the best decision, but setting yourself up to make great decisions down the line. Well, thank you, Dr. Dave Eng. I appreciate you being here and sharing your wisdom. Thanks so much. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate it being here. You can find Dr. Dave Eng at DaveEngDesigns.com. From there, you can go to the University XP website to learn more about game-based learning and his website, Job Hacker, where you can find his courses and consultation services or hire him as a speaker. And I will put all of those links in the show notes for this show at howtolife.com slash 032. I really like the concept of game-based learning and the parallels of games, player agency, and our own lives. And I also like how he mentions chunking down tasks in order to complete them and not be overwhelmed. That is a recurring theme through several of my podcasts and mentioned by several other guests. If that concept captured your attention, you may also enjoy listening to Episode 9, The Wisdom of Procrastination, Episode 17, How to Overcome Fear, and Episode 24, How to Focus, Follow Through, and Finish. Episodes 4, 25, and 27 touch upon this idea as well. 
All of the podcasts can be accessed on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now, or you can find them all on my website, howtolife.com. All of the YouTube Mominars are housed there as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can send an email to drlj at howtolife.com. And I'm also on Instagram at howtolifenow and Facebook under Laura Jagged. Thank you so much again for listening to this show. If you are loving it, please give it five stars on the platform that you're now listening to and leave a positive review if you have some time. I appreciate you all so much. That's it for today. We're closing in on the end of the year. And if you haven't yet, now would be a good time to soak in all the happiness and good cheer. And make sure you contribute to it as well. And speaking of well, all is well. Take care, everyone. You got this. Thank you.